You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. This podcast explores the mystery of relatedness as an organizing principle of the universe and of our lives. We are trying to catch a glimpse of connections beyond color, continent, country, or kinship through science, mysticism, spirituality, and the creative arts. I'm Donnie Bryant. I'm Barbara Holmes, and this is The Cosmic We. I'm going to take a moment to introduce our guest today, Belvi Rooks, and her partner, Baba Didan Gills. Let me tell you just a little bit about her life and her social activism. Belvi Rooks is co-founder of Growing a Global Heart with her late husband, Didan Gills. She's a writer, educator, producer, whose work weaves together the worlds of spirituality, feminism, ecology, and social justice. She served on several boards that reflect her commitment to justice-seeking. She served as a core faculty member at Holy Names University Culture and Spirituality Program. Bellevue has published works that have appeared in many books and anthologies. And the most recent that we'll be talking about today is I Give You the Springtime of My Blushing Heart. Now, because their partnership continues and because their lives are intertwined, I want to just give you a brief bio of her late husband, Didon Gills. He is co-founder of Growing a Global Heart. He is writer, poet, producer, environmental activist. He pioneered the idea of green recovery, a concept that combines stewardship and restoration of blighted urban areas. Didan was a mentor for rising generations, a motivator for people struggling in those urban environments, including the homeless, the drug addicted, and the incarcerated. Is there anything else you want the audience to know, Belvi, about you and your beloved partner? Well, thank you so much, Barbara. I have been looking forward to this because it's given me a chance to think deeply about my path and journey. And I realize that, you know, meeting Dr. King, well, he actually was not Dr. King when I met him as a 15-year-old in 1958 in San Francisco. He was working on his doctorate. And um, I realized that there are just such important ways in which that was such a profound uh, moment for me, which I didn't realize then. You know, he came and uh, the American Friends Service Committee had invited young people from, 400 young people from all over California. And, um, and there was this young minister that we had not heard of, and he spoke to our hearts. And I remember as young, we stood and we held each other and we, we cried because he ended by saying that we were special, but not in an elitist way, but we were special because 
He felt he could trust us to keep the faith and to love a better world into existence. And I feel um, that so much of what I've done was seated in that moment and in that encounter. Wow, what a wonderful blessing for your generation, you know? Yeah. He's saying, I trust you to carry on. My, my, my. What was the, the context for the gathering? The context for the gathering was the American Friends Service Committee. Um, and I, I, and I had done some work with them in the past. And the person responsible for uh, the youth program had heard about this young minister. And, uh, I, I, the Montgomery boycott had occurred, but he was not a known Person. In fact, when I checked in writing an essay that I was working on, um, there's nothing really recorded about his being there uh, at a CLMR. So the context for the gathering was the American Friends Service Committee, the Quaker Service Organization, had felt that it was really important for 400 randomly selected, I don't know, never knew how I got selected, um, to meet and hear this person, this young man. And one of the other historical footnotes was that um, I didn't know it at the time, but there was a young woman on the bus. We took a bus and the bus stopped in Palo Alto and this young woman got on with a huge guitar that was almost as big as she was. And uh, she said her name was Joan and we all were singing back in the back and and she said, Baez. And I said, what kind of name is Baez? And so she, and it turns out her mother was the receptionist at the Quaker Center where we went. So Joan, and, 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 and our joke uh-huh. got to be that the students in the South might be, uh, you know, demonstrating not to sit in the back of the bus, but we felt all the cool kids were in the back of the bus. So Joan came to the back of the bus and sang, and we all sang together. So it was a big shock to us when uh, she opened for Dr. King. It was the first, when she walked out first, and she sang until the 12th of Never. And uh, and that oh was my. a historical moment because uh, she and Dr. King connected in that moment, and he invited her to come to the South with him, and she did. And um, she explains in some of her writings that at one point, uh, I think I was 16, I think she was 17 or 18, but, but she says at one point her, her, her job uh, in the South was waking a very tired Dr. King and to make sure he got up and that they were out on the road. Uh, so there's that just historical footnote Amazing. You know, there's such a connection here because I was a Joan Baez groupie. <laughs> and so when my father and I went to, we went to the second march in Selma. Ah. Um, who, who is there the night before this great march but Joan Baez and Bob Dylan? Wow. And <laughs> the, tr- the troopers had been called out. They hated us. They were glaring at us. But Joan and Bob sang, and we left that spot feeling everything was going to be okay. (laughs) Great, great memories. Such synchronicity, too. Now, you and I have known each other. You and I have known each other for over 20 years. Um, We met at a conference, and um, it was the occasion of the release of the first edition of Race in the Cosmos, an invitation to view the world differently. And it was during that that session that you 
came into contact with your husband. Tell us the story of you and Didon meeting. <laughs> Actually, that's one of those uh, magical. I, 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 you know, I think the ancestors and the angels uh, often just uh, guide us synchronistically, and so. Uh, the synchronicity was, of course, race and the cosmos. You, you were. I, I was so excited to meet you, and uh, you all, and and it helped help set up a radio program, and for you and Brian Swim, and uh, and then at the last minute, just you and Brian said, "We think you should join us," and I said, three people for our program is too many," and no, I'm I I, I I'm not going to go, and. Uh, there was something, and so I went out and lay in the sun, and at some point, you know, there was no sun, and I looked up, and there's this looming uh, Brian Swim, who, you know, is a mathematical cosmologist, said, we're not going, we insist that you come with us, and I ended up going, and I thought, well, okay, I'll just sit there, and I'll not say anything. It was a Caroline Casey visionary activist show, and Brian said, Belvie's here. It's Belvie. Oh, no, you have to join the show, and so I did reluctantly. Well, Didon had moved into the LA Eco Village and had, as he says, accidentally that night. The show aired in San Francisco at 2 p.m. and it aired in Los Angeles the following morning at 5 or so a.m. And he says he had accidentally left his radio on and I guess gotten up to go to the bathroom or something and came back and heard these voices and heard us talking about your book and race in the cosmos. And he had just moved into an intentional environmental community where he was one of the few, you know, African-Americans and was having a hard time struggling around race. And, you know, these were committed people, but having challenging times. So the universe story, race in the cosmos, my work describing how I had gone to South Central, um, to work with a group of young people around expanding their vision um, beyond the block um, because I was really interested because uh, at that time, Los Angeles had the highest rate of gang violence in, in, in the country and probably the world. And I had been inspired by reading Brian Swim and Thomas Berry's book, The Universe Story, and it, it had introduced me to this cosmic vision and I felt that we could not condemn all these young men engaged in gang violence because, which basically was a struggle over a block when we had not had them understand that their place was so much larger than a block. So I developed a curriculum and went there and, and I talked about it and Didon got excited about it. He was excited about your work and started running around telling everybody about us and our work. And I think his friends were tired. They tell me they were so tired of him. You know, you have to read this, you have to read that. He was going and reading everything. And then one day his ex-wife came to him and said, all those, some of those people that you're so excited about will be meeting at the, will be at the Bioneers conference uh, in a few months. And he said, well, yeah, that's okay. I'm not going to go. She said, yes, you are, because I've already bought tickets and we're all going. And so <laughs> that I always, uh, I always just, uh, say, Barbara, that you and Brian uh, and this radio program, I, I met the person of my, 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 my heart mate through, through that magic. Yeah, magic of spirit. And you got married in Ghana in 2007. 
Tell yes. us about that. <laughs> well, you know, Didan had, you know, had, we were, you know, needless to say, and, you know, we had college kids, kids married, and we just knew too many people. We had too many grandchildren. So we just decided to elope. And uh, we thought, forget <laughs> this. We're happy. People are happy. We're out of here because we just. And uh, I had traveled extensively in Africa during the anti-apartheid era. Uh, you know, I was an anti-apartheid activist. I'd met with the liberation movement leaders in Zambia and had, you know, gone to UN conferences around apartheid in Tanzania. So. So I had traveled extensively in Africa. Uh, Didan had never been. And I felt like this was such a, you know, uh, an important time in our lives. We should just do something very special. And so I read, met uh, a, an Akan uh, spiritual teacher at through Reverend Michael Beckwith's church. I happened to go to. Um, and um, Brother Te- Ishmael Tete was there from Ghana. And I, you know sat in on some of his workshops, attended his sermons, and I went up and, you know, told him how profoundly, you know, grateful I was for his African spiritual, you know, um, sharing in terms of, you know, and and I said, and I'm thinking about getting married, and I sure wish you were going to be here, and uh, you could, he said, well, if you come to Ghana, I'll, may, I'll perform the ceremony, and Didan and I decided that that's what we should do. I had traveled extensively in Africa, as I said, but I'd never been to Ghana. And, you know, when we were in high school, Ghana was, you know, being the first African nation to gain its independence from British colonial rule was just like, we couldn't believe it. We said we were going to go. So we ended up going. Little did we know, you know, that, you know, Ghana had gained its independence in 1957, which meant that 2007, they were in a year-long celebration of their 50th anniversary. So we oh. felt like everybody was celebrating our marriage. So, so I mean, the country, the country was celebrating. And so we couldn't believe that we had just accidentally shown up uh, at the 50th anniversary. So um, we felt that that was just really, um, it was a wonderful time to be there. And we had decided actually also that we would visit Elmina Slave Dungeon after our wedding. So a few days after our wedding, and people had said, you're on your honeymoon and you're going to a slave dungeon. And we were explaining that we were really going to honor the fact that everybody who looked like us in this part of the world, quote unquote, new world, had had an ancestor who had come through one of those more than 100 slave dungeons along the West Coast of Africa. And um, that was um, that was why we went. And it was profoundly life-changing, both in terms of the heartbreak and ultimately in terms of the heart opening. Could I just read you a sentence, a paragraph or so from my journal? Of course, yeah. Belvie's journal at El Mino. As I stood looking out at the vast ocean beyond, I tried hard to imagine what reaching this spot, this door of no return, must have felt like for some long-ago unremembered African ancestor as she stood trembling on the precipice of a terrifyingly unknown and uncertain future. One of the most horrifying bits of information shared was the fact that, 
at the height of the slave trade, there were so many dead and dying and sick people and dying bodies that were tossed into the sea at this very spot. The frenzied feeding opportunity resulted in the change of the shark migration pattern along this entire bit of coast. Tears flowed uncontrollably. I sobbed as I glanced at the ocean a few feet below. It was hard to process the fact that for over 300 years without interruption, millions of African men, women, and children had begun the long journey into slavery from this very spot. The names of the people passing through the door of no return have all been erased from our historical memory. The names of the mothers and the fathers and the children and the sisters and the brothers and the babies and the aunts and the potters and the weavers and the farmers and the priests and the healers, most of whom were women. The numerous slave dungeons, over 400 on the west coast of Africa, are living monuments and stark reminders of our inhumane history and what we have done to each other. For a couple of days afterwards, the tears flowed uncontrollably. Something broke, you know. I was filled with hatred, and I felt like I'd, if I, I didn't want to see another white person anytime soon, and I, I, I forgot everything that I knew and everything that I practiced, and I just went home, went, went to bed, and I couldn't stop crying. And part of what I was crying about was just, I had gone back afterwards and sat in the women's dungeon because I had heard and actually traveled up the back stairs of the governor's mansion where every so often he had all, and the back stairs led into the women's courtyard at the dungeon, you know, and he would have them, we were told that they would be brought out and he would select a young woman to come up. And I just, um, just my heart broke and I couldn't stop crying and, Finally, Didan came to me and said, I know this is hard. It's been hard for me, but what is it that hurts so bad? And I told him that it was the erasure, that we knew the investors, we knew the name of the ships, we knew when it left, you know, America, when it stopped in Jamaica. We knew everything except um, the people and that the wound of, it was just the wound of erasure. That was, and he said, as you will recall, his question was, what would healing look like? Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Well, Bill V, I, I have to say that hearing the reading from your journal um, brought back imagery from a piece that was in the book, I Give You the Springtime of My Blushing Heart. And that piece was entitled Sacred Wound. 
And as you mentioned the wound of erasure, it reminded me of that piece. Do you mind just reading a piece from that for us and for our audience? The Sacred Wound. This was a a piece that Didon um, wrote. He was in. He was a recovery counselor at the point at which I met him, which meant that there was something to recover from. And the sacred wound. The sacred wound is a wound so deep, so utterly piercing to the soul, that it opens up a pathway of compassion for all beings who suffer. One day, I realized that this odd journey that I had been on had delivered me to a place of compassion that I could not explain. It seemed that when I would encounter someone suffering, I could feel it myself and had this compulsion to reach out to them and to touch them and to soothe them and to weep with them. Something welled up inside of me it was as if we shared the beat of a common heart. Remember Didon's question, what would healing look like? And, and basically, that's the question to our nation, to all people suffering trauma, suffering from just the malaise of society itself. What does healing look like for you now that Didon is in the realm of the ancestors? And what did you learn about grieving? Oh, Barbara, I um, I think this has been, and it's been five and a half years. It's so hard to even imagine because he's so present. But I just had to disconnect from everything that we had known because there were too many triggers and so many triggers. and And I basically fell apart. I had, but now I realize I just surrendered to the love and the grief. And I went to Colorado and I just cried a lot. And my therapist, I had gotten wise enough to get a friend who was a therapist and I could deal with long distance. And she just kept reminding me as people were worrying, you know, how important it was to get on with life. And I could, you know, I, I could, I, 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 that made me angry, actually. And she just said to me one day, Bellevue, remember, the grief journey is different for everybody, and it takes as long as it takes. And I'm grateful that I had the privilege of allowing it to take as long as it took, uh, and I could really try to um, remember the love that we shared. But more importantly, he said as he was leaving Zen Hospice, and he said, look, we have, we have planted a lot of seeds, and those seeds will need nurturing now more than ever. Just know that I would be there. And in the midst of my despair, I said for somebody who had gone through recovery, who had made amends, whose word was impeccable, I said, what if I believed he was really here? What if I believed him when he said, just know and trust that I will be there? And it was at that point that I went back to what we had been working on, which was springtime. 
I went back to being in touch with all of the young people. Part of our, 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 our work and collaboration was intergenerational wisdom circles. And that's what he meant uh, about the seeds that we planted. One of the things that has helped me that I've learned from you is the role of ritual in healing. And I think it's in your book that you say that, well, while you were in Ghana and while you were considering what healing would look like, it was recommended that you do um, a ritual of cleansing yes. in the waters yes. so that you do not walk with sorrow. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that ritual. Well, that was really very interesting because when Didan came to me uh, with just so much love and what would healing look like? And, you know, when you're in the pain, I didn't want, I, it was just like, what? Healing? I was annoyed, actually. <laughs> Here I am crying. and But he, he, his question and the love planted a seed so that the next morning, I remembered what the elders had said. I had not remembered it. So his planting that seed. So the next morning I got out of bed because they had said, when you visit the slave dungeons, when you come back, try and find the nearest body of water, prefer, you know, running water and do a ritual and wash your, because you do not want to walk with all that sorrow. So I got out of bed and went down to the ocean, the Pacific, where some a friend had gifted us for our honeymoon. And across the bay, I could see the, 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 the slave dungeon. And the ritual, they said, had been to ritually wash our feet, my feet. And as I was ritually washing my feet and, and Didan's question about what hurts so bad is that the people had been erased as I was washing, ritually washing my feet. I kept hearing in my mind, plant a tree, plant a tree, plant a tree. And I, and then I realized that my friend Alice Walker had a poem called Torture in which that's the refrain, plant a tree. But I thought it was a poem about sa sadness and heartbreak when they torture your mother, plant a tree is the one of the lines when they torture your father plant a tree when they torture your leaders and your brother plant a tree but it was in that moment of doing the ritual that i realized that i had been focusing on the death and the dying that preceded the plant a tree but that the tree that it was a poem of hope because the very act of planting a tree meant a commitment to the future because it took trees a long time to grow it took but more importantly, the act of planting a tree on the day of our wedding in Accra, 400,000 Ghanaians in northern Ghana had been displaced by a flood. And that Bishop Tutu had pointed out that in Africa, catastrophic climate, ch climate change looks like drought sometimes and looks like flooding the next. So I had just experienced I thought it was Katrina when I looked at the newspaper the next morning after our wedding and saw all these black people with things on their head and in the midst of this. Full. So in that moment, I didn't connect all those dots then. But in that moment, I realized that planting a tree in the context of catastrophic climate change and what was ha happening to the planet 
was a way of ritually and planting them ceremonially and ritually was a way of breathing new life into all of these forgotten spirits and souls. That's the foundation of growing a global heart. Yes, yes, yes. It, it and 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 I'm always still quite amazed in the context of doing the ritual that the vision occur appeared. Oh, it always evokes something. Do you remember being at Haley Farm about 15 years ago? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do. And the women from New Mexico began a ritual counterclockwise dance. Yes. And I'm Gullah, so I knew enough to get off of the 30, the 12, the 15, and the 45. <laughs> I grabbed my computer and I ran. <laughs> you, you were sitting at the 45. At each of those key points, there was an eruption, spirit happening. Each of those four points. Mm. Um there was something that happened that I will never forget. I mean, I know it's not really shareable, but it was a ritual that unwound time. Well, that your being um, and having a gullah, you know, um, background and ancestors that you honor and that you know really um, has meant a lot, actually, in a lot of ways and synchronistically. Um, my praise song for the widow by Paul Marshall is just an amazing and astonishing, um, book that meant so much to me. And I have not read it for over 20 years, but I, and I, I finally woke up and realized, wait a minute, as, as, as we're on Kariaku and I'm thinking about you and thinking about the Gullah, the Gullah tradition in, you know, that our part of the world and you, I realized um, how important it is for us to reconnect, particularly at this time, with those ancient wisdom traditions. Yes. I have seen coming across my uh, Facebook feed a lot of activity in California right now that you're involved in. Saving the trees. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yes, because part of what happened was this tree metaphor and trees that breathe for the whole, you know, we saw it in a very, you know, I realized growing, growing a global heart, we were thinking about it. Um, you have to allow the time for visions to express themselves, right? They, uh, and uh, so the trees were there, um, the tree metaphor and breathing for the whole. And Didan written, wrote several, you know, poems about the trees. And um, I realized that now I'm back. I didn't think I was going to be here back in California, back on this coast. I had left because it was so so triggering. And I come back at a time when... When I moved here in, in the 80s, and I came when Alice Walker won the Pulitzer, and we started a publishing company that she had been visioning and dreaming about and decided she just won the Pulitzer. So if we were going to start it, we should do it now. And I left Mother Jones and came here in, in, in the early 80s. And when I arrived, there were people in the trees trying to protect the trees. Julia Butterfly Hill, who ended up actually writing a blurb for the book, 
had been up, stayed in a tree for two years. And I could not believe that here I am back here 25 years later. And this is what I'm being presented with. And I felt the despair in, in, in the young people. And, and, I, and I felt like I needed to come out of and be more active and, and mainly support them and uh, understanding what we learned, what we got right. And so I, I, I stepped in as a mentor, really, for a 13-year-old um, goddess daughter of mine um, as she gets up and, you know, just has just taken this on. And I really realized that, you know, my grandmother's, one of her favorite mantras was from the book of Esther. And it basically, um, she would always remind me when I was kind of like wondering and trying to figure it out. She always reminded me but that, but for such a time as this, that you were born. And so coming back after 20 years, nearly 30 years, and having these young people deal with the same issue, and there's something, um, there's just something very frightening about a culture that does not honor and has gotten rid of the majority of trees that were 2,500 years old, many of them. And that there's a tree here in town that shows the size and the number of rings when Christ was born, when the Magna Carta was signed. So, yes, I really, really have just had to step up and be present for the planet, for the future, and for these young people whose futures are just being, um, who are being devastated by the prospect of what they're experiencing and we're experiencing fires in California and my grandson has his apartment flooded in New York. Uh, but it takes me back to our wedding day in Africa, in Ghana, being confronted with catastrophic climate change. And here we are 30 years later, like 400 people, thousand people displaced, people being displaced right now in Germany. A friend of mine said his family is from the region where there's flooding and they can't find 13 and, and, and 1300 people have been lost. So I just um, feel that, but for such a time as this, that we're here. And, 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 and as I say, think about Didon when he said, uh, you know, he would be there. And I've been thinking about my grandmother and, and I so respect the Gullah people because of the emphasis on elders and, 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 and history. But I thought, you know, my grandmother, what if she, not just but for such a time as this that I was born, but, but for such a time as this that we were born here together. Yes. And I mean, we never realized this would happen, that we would age. But we are now. <laughs> <laughs> we thought we would be young forever, but we are now elders. Right. And so these... The thoughts that you're leaving with us are blessings upon another generation. We are not promised that the tasks will end. We are just told that for such a time of, as this, you were born to continue the struggle. Yes. This is probably a good time to maybe reconnect with one of the pieces that I think uh, was in the book, Springtime. I actually listened to it on 
as an audio book. And oh. uh, what was amazing about it is that to hear you read it and also to hear Danny Glover read it gave so much more texture and context to the work. And and there was a piece as you uh, you you alluded to earlier um, to a cosmic connection, and you alluded to um, the influence of our ancestors. But there's a piece in there early in the in the book called the big picture. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe even read a piece from that book um, because that book really stood out to me. It gave a different perspective. It, it, it invited us to reimagine, if you will, what life looks like. It allowed us to reimagine what grief looks like. And it puts us dead in the center uh, and diametrically opposes various aspects of life. And I just wanted to see if you could read a little bit about that piece for us and uh, invite us to be able to experience that for this moment. This was a piece that really, you know, I ended up doing a lot of editing of Didan's, and he only had a couple of things published while he was alive. And uh, But this one he really sat with, and uh, I saw it in various incarnations. I so love this piece. And it's called I Am. I am old and wise as the night. I am as beautiful as a bird in flight. I am the moon and the sea. I am the robin and the bee. I am the soil and I am the tree. I'm the lion and the gazelle. I am heaven and I am hell. I am the ring and I am the bell. I'm the joy and I am the tear. I am the brave and I am the fear. I am the blistering desert. I'm the freezing snow. I'm the cringing coward and the gentle hero. I'm the aged and I am the young. I am the weak and I am the strong. I am the smile and I am the frown. I am the pauper and I am the crown. I am the wrong and I am the right. I am the day and I am the night. I am now and I am never. I am yesterday and I am forever. I am the bitter and I am the sweet. I live on the hill and I live on the street. I am the top and I am the bottom. I am Martin, Hitler, Gandhi, and Sodom. I am red, black, yellow, brown, and white. I love, hate, laugh, cry, and fight. All the universe is reflected in me. I am all that ever was and ever will be. When I lose, it's the lesson that I win. Judging others is my sin. Wow. And, thank you. And this, thank you for asking, because this is fe- special in, an, in another kind of way, because he couldn't, he kept not letting it go. And finally, he brought it to me and, you know, he asked me to read it. And I said to him, well, you know, what what, what you're saying is that you are all the universe and it's reflected in you. And you haven't really explicitly said that. And so I feel, you know, so I contributed all the universe is reflected in me based on that conversation. Wow. Very profound. You're very profound. I just want to say thank you because, you know, and I know this may be a little out of order, but I wanted to give my uh, my response and my 
it got pretty emotional as you were talking about grief in your process of healing. And uh, I, I recently experienced a loss within the last year, um, experienced a divorce. And mm. there is a grieving period. You know, it's it's yes. like the loss of someone you, you love, a loss of a family, loss of a something that's familiar. But your work and your your insights and your your journey, um, even your wisdom um, has been very well received, at least on this side here. And I say thank you to that. In the Marvel Comics world, there's a Marvel series entitled WandaVision. Um, Vision is a Marvel character who is actually not <laughs> not human, but uh, and, and so, but in season, and I hope this is not just a spoiler alert, but um, in season one, I believe episode eight, um, there's a scene, there's a moment in this in, in episode eight where Vision is sitting down with his soon-to-be wife Wanda, and she was grieving over the loss of her brother. Envision was having a hard time processing, you know, the pain. Um, and and he, he, he says something that is so profound. And he says, I, I really don't know grief because I've never had anyone to love. I've mm. never loved anyone. And he said, what is grief except love or love that mm. perseveres? Yeah. And I just thought that was so mm. profound. Oh, I'm sitting here just uh, kind of very moved. Thank you for that. That's the story of you and Dedon. Uh, a love that perseveres. Thank you, Belvi. I love you. I love your work. Thank you for blessing us with your presence today. And thank you both. Blessings and much gratitude. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.